My name is Susan Williams, and my family and I are members of the Windy Hill East Parish. And today I have the privilege of reading scripture for you. It's 1 Kings 1 through 13, 28 through 37, and 46 through 53. Now King David was old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servant said to him, let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king, and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruah, and Abiathar, the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiah, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei and Rei and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel, and he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan, the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David, our Lord, does not know it? Now therefore come, let me give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came to the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my lord, King David, live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, and Nathan, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiah. So they came before the king. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne. For he shall be king in my place, and I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. Then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my lord, the king, say so. And the Lord has been with my lord, the king. Even so, may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my lord, King David. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our lord, King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. And the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, 
who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eye seen it. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon, so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. And then it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. May God bless the reading of this word. Once again, I'm Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church. Did we dismiss children? Okay, all right. Couldn't remember. Um, and uh, we begin our sermon series today in the book of Kings. And as I imagined, I didn't imagine this when we decided to, to choose to use this book. But I can't think of a more fitting start and passage for where we currently sit not only as a country, but city. When I think about where we are, it is like this country and city is brooding and wrestling in social and political uncertainty. We are waiting and looking for who will lead us and what that will mean. As we go through this period, about to go through this period described by many as a lame duck period of the presidency where President Obama begins a three-month cleaning out of his desk. We are tense in who will sit in the Oval Office. But we also sit in unrest and uncertainty and building tension in our cities, Charlotte included over what is fueled by a rift between the authorities and primarily African-Americans. Here's what we're all wondering, whether we can vocalize it or envision it. Who will take the mantle? Who will sit on the throne above the sometimes unworthy, broken reign of rulers and authorities, even if those authorities are ourselves? I want to contend and offer from the Bible this morning that for this game of thrones we are dealing with in our world and in our city, God has crowned and sent us a king. And there are three things I want us to learn and embrace from this passage today. First, God's administration of grace and justice and rule does not and will not fade. Secondly, God's administration does not and will not get overpowered by this world. And finally, God's administration will never leave the throne. So here's what's going on. It's about 1,000 B.C. And the greatest king of Israel has gotten old. Yes, the king that represented in large part more than any other office, the, the people's connection with their God and his divine justice, peace, and prosperity in this crazy world. But the Bible tells us here that King David was old. 
so old that he couldn't keep his own body warm. And, and, and some believe that may be cold language for he was no good or comfort for a woman anymore. And so they tried to revive their king. Sorry, I'm kings. It's kind of like PG-13, okay? Let me go ahead and put that up there. So they tried to revive their king through the ancient version of Viagra in a form of a young woman. And the Bible says, though she helped his temperature stay up, the king couldn't do much else. But not rising to the occasion made it appear that King David's rule and God's anointed administration through David had faded in its relevancy and potency. He was deemed impotent as God's choice to continue to be used to bring God's administration and blessings and rule. And so his son, Adonijah, and some of his boys decide it is their time to take over because they are now the new relevant. And so Adonijah, exalting himself, as the Bible says, and declaring that he will be king, be king. It, it makes sense because his daddy, by all tests, by all human appearances, is too old and slow. The old ways, the original OG way was over, irrelevant, ineffective, and Adonijah thought he and his boys again were the new thing. But Adonijah, the folks that went along with him failed to realize something, that David's wife, Bathsheba and the prophet Nathan recognized and appealed to that God's administration, God's ways, God's revealed truth and promises do not fade in their relevance and potency in this world regardless of what's going on or not going on because God himself does not fade or lose his power. I will admit, as a pastor here in Charlotte, especially with all the unrest and a rising need to answer questions for a new generation dealing with an age-old problem in, this, in a city where with, with more churches and evangelical heritage than most other cities, who therefore in large part seem to be irrelevant and have been irrelevant all these years to the concerns raised and seen by the recent events. With all of that in tow, all of that in my face, I will be honest, I am more tempted than ever to think and then believe that what I've been called to offer the world is so tired, is so failed looking, so played out, so provincial, so uncool, so has been, and yesterday, so... so I'm going to say it, as a black man in this country, so dominated and good for European heritage Christianity. Where? Where is it really helping connecting with my people in our struggles by talking about God and the Bible and sin and Jesus dying for our sins and come to him today and he will change things. Billy Graham been saying that for years and look what's going on. In a situation that don't look like God and his means and agents of change in the church and God's people can rise to the occasion. It can definitely appear that the church and sometimes God uh, behind the church has failed over and over to answer the world's questions and problems in ways that seem relevant and effective for the day. If you're a believer, it's okay to be honest. 
honest in this world that, that we feel that sometimes in our private lives and as we look at it, the world, we too fall into wanting to turn to a, how was Adonijah described in verse 6? Handsome. <laughs> to turn to a more handsome and young, and new, and revised answer, and word from God. A new kind of church, right? With task force in a city emphasized over church membership, right? Something newfangled. New colors and everything, right? For some of us, in my culture, turning to a black power movement with an emphasis on words like truth and love and peace and community more than actually taking time to know and learn what those words and concepts actually mean and how they're connected to the glory of God who invented them. We want to, like everyone else, matter in a world where orthodox reformational Christianity appears to be impotent. God, the Bible and the church, what the gospel message has been about for years under the demands and litmus tests of this world, I said this world's test appears to be played out, faded out, irrelevant, and unimportant. It's too slow, y'all. It's too old-timey. It's too preachy. It's too preachy through the same archaic book, singing some of the same songs for 300 years, right? Sing some of the same old lines, you know, trust God, God is good all the time, the Blessing is waiting for you. Grab a hold. All the same stuff my grandmama said. And when the church talks about God and Jesus and sin and church and the Bible, the world seems to not get much of a rise out of it. But not only that, it can appear that when we bring the urgency and passion of our youth, of our beautiful struggles before the Lord, our modern struggles, our now struggles, at first glance, it doesn't seem to get a rise out of the God of the Bible or that we matter much to him either. My prayers seem cold sometimes, y'all. I look at the TV and I'm like, oh, Lord, please help. Something else happened. Here's the hard part. God's administration, in and of itself, hearing and learning the word, the sacraments and baptism, the Lord's Supper, the prayer of the saints, the committed community of faith, are not irrelevant, faded, played out, or impotent. God continues to and has not changed how he changes and reaches and cares for people. But we have changed and are fickle in our expectations of God. Hear what the Bible says. And again, this is difficult to hear when you're going through something. The Bible says that those who come to God and request something of him must first believe that God is. <laughs> and believe in who God is. And who they are as mere humans. And who they are not, right? As mere humans. Hear this. God and his means, his ways to save and rescue our world and lives are only irrelevant and impotent because in ourselves we have already determined somewhere deep a more relevant and powerful answer or way outside of him, either in this world or in ourselves. In fact, the Bible says in verse 5 that Adonijah, what? He exalted himself. 
It didn't say he just saw the situation for what it was. No, the scripture says he exalted himself. He set himself in his plan of desire above God's administration. And so like Adonijah, sometimes we play this game of thrones with ourselves. Where we keep moving our self-driven expectations and definitions of how and who God is while God stays true to his. Now I understand how pain can make you do that. If you poke me in the arm, I'm going to move it out of the way. Like Adonijah moved up though, we seek to move up over God. It's tempting when you're hurting. It's tempting when you're uncertain. Exalted where we shouldn't be and God stays the same. We put our human expectations and test above God's own revealed knowledge given to us about himself. Like we are God's teacher, we give the test to him to see whether he'll pass. To a God who clearly says, don't test me like that. Because I'll fail it on purpose. It is safe to say that when we have self-determined that God is not capable of answering us in the same old ways we say he is fated, but he is not fated from being God, from being on the scene. We have faded in our faith and faked ourselves out because we get tired of waiting and wanting and have grown bitter and angry and impatient. Now, I'm not trying to say bitterness and angry and, anger and impatient isn't from real hurt and pain and struggle. That's not what I'm saying. But it can lead to that. I see and experience as a pastor, like many of you have a face is dropped when profound and heavy philosophical and social questions and issues come to you and me about social justice and oppression and gender and sexuality and politics and situations like we have going on in the city. And I answer and I go to and I seek hope and help with the same, and some want to call it tired answers of word, sacrament, prayer, discipleship, Jesus, and the gospel. Get this, hear this. When and if God who created you and has all power in his ways, in his means of doing things, has become irrelevant and effective and ineffective, then it is clear what is going on. Like Adonijah, we don't really want a relevant and potent God on the throne, some of us. We give him a litmus test, a rigged test, that we know deep down he will fail or we take his lack of answer in our timing in ways that make us matter to this world, we take that as a sign that his ways are fading. You know why? Because then we are finally free to get what we really want. Like Adonijah, to be on the throne. <laughs> or not give up the throne. Like Adonijah took David's stuff to crown himself. We can take all the stuff we like from the Bible and from the faith and run and rule with it at our disposal. Let me ask you, especially in times like this, oh, it's so tempting. There are, I mean, Satan is busy, y'all. What litmus test game are you and I playing with God? especially at this time, that is designed to make you exalt yourself. To rise up and take matters into your own hands and means, hear me sincerely, you can't truly know or see him as a throne God because once we stop being God's tester and teacher like Adonijah found out, the one the Bible calls the ancient of days will arise relevant 
and powerful as ever. But not only does the administration of God not fade, the administration of God does not and will not be overpowered by this world. So when it looks like David and God's administration threw him as a lame duck, Adonijah, David's somewhat estranged son, takes it upon himself to get the throne. Look at what he says here in verse 5. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, um, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared himself for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done this or so and so? He was also very handsome, a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He, confu- he conferred with Joab and son of Zeruiah and with Abathar the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. And Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehida, and Nathan the prophet, and Shemi, and Ray, and David's mighty men were with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatted, fattened calf by the serpent stone, which is beside in Rogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men of Solomon, his brother. The word in verse 5 is interesting. Prepare. It means that Adonijah planned, y'all. He schemed. He figured out that he could take advantage of his father's freedom and absenteeism so that no one would suspect by getting all of these chariots and horses he meant anything bad by it. And then the Bible says that Adonijah was handsome, and being called handsome in the Bible is not a very good thing. And we know that because he mentions that he was born next to his brother Absalom, who was also described as handsome when he was alive. But this is less about a sequence of birth and more about being a chip off the old block of the same kind of personality, second only to Absalom's, which meant like his older brother, Adonijah manipulated and marketed things and people by outward appearances of being favorable and good. He was a slick, good-looking salesman. He uses powers of persuasion and, and to deceive and fool people around him. And like verse 7 says, to confer. That means inviting some and purposely leaving others out from the table. The Bible is saying that Adonijah was politicking and gathering people for his cause, using his privilege against what God had already planned and promised to do through his father, whether he was old or not. Simply put, Adonijah was straight perpetrating a fraud in order to truly crown himself king. What Adonijah did is exactly what we think about when we imagine that there's some sort of conspiracy. That there's some sort of systematic institutional scheme going on where people's access to power, privilege, and resources find a way to control and take over and control and literally sit down on top of oppressing the world and its people for their own good. This is how some of us would say the so-called man took over and rules the world. I was having a discussion about the social history lesson given by a sociologist by the name of Dr. Tim Wise and how the racial distinction in term white was purposely inserted in the vocabulary, minds, and social structures of the new world at the time so that lower class whites would exalt themselves and feel exalted above African slaves in the rest of the world they were seeking to con- conquer. 
so that they see before the slave trade and European imperialism started to get into full swing, everything was a class system, right? A changing but still sort of feudal system. Common man versus aristocracy or noble class. But white was introduced, according to an opinion of the sociologist, as a way to create loyal middle management by poor classes over aristocratic property slaves and conquering of non-white countries. To be used by the upper class, they exalted them by calling them white. By dividing the world in half, the white and everybody else. Instead of the people in control with all the money and privilege and everybody else. And later to stop a class, and they did it to stop a class solidarity. That if all poor and oppressed people got together regardless of race, they would change the balance of economic and social power and demand. Forget all that for a minute. It's just an example. I just need to fill it in for you. We can come back and talk about it. Call me up. We'll talk. There's a video, too, you should see it. It's kind of interesting. But I'm not a sociologist. I'm a pastor, okay? So when I talk to you, I'm just be you know, talking to Howard Brown, okay? The non-sociologist. So I, 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 I'm all have all this together, okay? But it's a real interesting discussion. But forget all of that for a minute, as hard as it might be. A group of us were discussing this, and I was thinking and maybe said, do you think there was a meeting like Adonijah had? A conference? right? A behind-scenes invite-only party of elite people to say, let's make white a new word, y'all, so that we can keep and control and shape the future of the world for the next few hundred years. Man, that is scary for people to appear to have that kind of scheming ability and affluence and power. But whether or not there really was a big meeting hundreds of years ago that now has shaped race and class forever in this world. We know that human beings and institutions, and hear me now, as the Bible teaches, evil demonic forces can and have schemed in ways to not only have the power and resource and position to scheme like that, but to bring much turmoil into this world against God, his people, and his creation. There has been a conference against you. There is a scheme. There is a sinful world and structure going on that is opposed to us. There is another kingdom opposed to justice and peace and freedom from oppression. It exists. Fairness to us all. Because we are all sinners, whether we are in an aristocratic man club or in the down-by-law suspect reformer prospect club, all of this desire to shape or shake up the world for what we consider good or bad, regardless of what class we're in, is driven by fear and pride, in large part due to a blurry future and a broken, often painful past, right? There's a backstory with this thing with Adonijah and his father, David. Though I can't get into all the drama of it right now. It's like one of these shows, Game of Thrones or Empire or something like that, just drama. David and Adonijah didn't have a good relationship. Do you see that in the text? The Bible sometimes has these double entendres, right? Look, look, look at verse 6. 
His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? That's pretty good dad. He's always out to make you happy. You know what this text actually is saying? David was not the best dad to Adonijah. Adonijah was fatherless, basically. He was undisciplined, uncared for much of his life, raised without a dad in the home. Adonijah came from a broken home, basically, though they were rich. Could have just as well been living in a stereotypically understood inner city somewhere with the kind of fathering he and his brother mentioned here, Absalom got from David, in large part because guess what? They had different mamas than Solomon. Can you say baby mamas with an S drama? Yeah, it was like that. It's going to make sense in a minute. David had 19 sons and one daughter that we know about with seven different wives in two different cities, like he had two different families and lives cross town from each other. And then in the middle of this, Solomon's mom, Bathsheba, whose first husband was killed by David so he could have her, comes to David when she heard about Adonijah fronting like he was king. See the picture, see the picture of brokenness, y'all. She goes into the room where the young girl is currently attending him. Drama. And says this beginning at verse 16. But she bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? Ain't they married? Why is she in the room already? Anyway, she said to him, My Lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son, will reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my Lord, the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen and fatted calf and cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the sons of the king at Abiathar, the priest, and Joab, the commander of the army. But hear this. But Solomon, your servant, he is not invited. And now, my lord, the king, the eyes of Israel on you. Tell them to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. Otherwise, it will come to pass when my lord, the king, sleeps with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. What's going on? She's trying to make sure she and her son get dads, y'all. See, this ain't a moral lesson. It's not a moral lesson of Bathsheba is better than Adonijah. We get caught up in that, and that's where we miss the gospel. And as self-centered as her request might have been amidst all the drama, it was God's plan and promise through David that all his sons, uh, that of all his sons, Solomon be king. Even though Solomon was growing up in the same broken house baby mama drama that Adonijah was. Here's where the Bible is going with this. This world is filled with powerful schemes and plans. And yes, even conspiracies. And yes, broken social and family situations, possibly, that will seek to overcome God's plans for you in this world. There, especially right now, are more powerful moves and perpetrating and politicking to get this person or that person elected president. All kinds of evil economic plans and procedures going, in and going on in those big buildings uptown that will directly and indirectly keep you and your community and your people enslaved, working their 60 hours a week 
or enslaved in abject economic poverty, all sorts of administration drama going on, and of course broken relationships between leaders and certain groups of people, between certain ethnic groups, all kinds of relationship breakdowns. Things are so blurred and systematically designed and in place to oppress and hurt and harm your faith or your economic level or your neighborhoods or your children or you being a teacher or you being a stay-at-home mom or you being a black man or the fact that you were born into a broken home or single mother trying to make it work or divorcee or single woman who gets ignored because you don't have a family. All sorts of things have been schemed and put in place that should push you over the edge and bring you over to the dark side. And yes, like everyone else, like Bathsheba, you aren't perfect. You are a sinner too. But I tell you this, if you are standing on and embraced by the plans and purposes of God, no power, no scheme of man, not the man, Satan, or any demonic or institutional force of racism or classism or sexism or beliefism or any other ism can snatch you out of his hand and out of his plan for you. I don't care how strong or woke you are or how much drama you are caught up in, or on the blue line, the black line, the brown line, the beige line, the red line, or the white line, there is no power, no plan, no person, no politic, no oppression, no situation you could have been born into or brought into even in this country, whether you ended up in a penthouse or the Section 8 house. None of those things ultimately determine your standing. like Bathsheba had before God's King David. None of that can determine to stop your standing before God like Adonijah's drama and desire to climb the throne. It is but a temporary society we live in. A temporary situation we are going on, going through here, headed exactly where God wants it, to his justice, to his truth, to his love, to his peace, to his prosperity, to his reparation and reformation and to his redemption. And if you are or become his, if you are or become his son or daughter reborn to Jesus, regardless of what being born to your earthly mother may mean, nothing can overpower, overcome God's manifest and beneficial and loving and powerful destiny of glory he has for you and his community of faith. I see people. I see the commentators. I see the talking heads. Look at this person. Look how they're born. They don't have no daddies. They don't have no mama. They don't have this. They don't have that. None of that determines your destiny in Christ. That's why they act this way. That's why they got to act this way. That's why they're going to do this. None of that determines your destiny in Christ. Which means you and I don't have to play the game of thrones. We don't have to bow or resort to violence or apathy, acting like everything is okay, or by putting our hope in gaining worldly power to matter. Or by trying to keep things status quo, or even try to make things as our mayor, whom I like a lot, but I think was unhelpful in describing what happened Wednesday night is not the Charlotte she knows or grew up in. Even if this is not and never will return to be the Charlotte you grew up in, we don't have to let our broken situations, our ignorance, and our fear of the world's schemes and turmoil rule us 
Because God's king is never going to leave his throne. In our passage, all this flexing and political and religious drama is going on, and we already saw Bathsheba's appeal to David. And look at, look at old, worn out King David's response and result. Look at verse 28. So she comes before the king. Then King David answered, call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, as the Lord God lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my Lord King David live forever. And hang in there as we keep reading. Hang in there. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of my Lord, of your Lord, and have Solomon, my son, ride on my mule and bring him down to Gehan. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon! You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be in my king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoda, answered the king, Amen, may the Lord, the, the God of my lord the king, say so. And the Lord has been with my lord the king, as the Lord has been with my lord the king. Even so, he be with Solomon, make his throne greater than the throne of my lord, King David. And then look what happens in verse 46. This is uh, the servant of Adonijah coming to Adonijah. I guess they just hang it out at the after party. You know, his king after party. You know, I could just see an empty champagne bottle sitting around. You know, they, he, he got the crown on his head, some kind of crown. You know, he, he the man, chilling, all his boys. They're having a good time. And this is what happens. He says, guess what, y'all? There's a noise. You know what that noise was? Solomon sits on a royal throne, the royal one, not yours. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord, King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed, and the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has gained someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the ground, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. Here's the good news. In this world, in this city, there's a game of thrones going on of who's relevant and who matters and who's the end thing and who is now and who is powerful, and it has created a world of uncertainty and turmoil and fear and oppression and anger. 
But the Bible is saying the world and we are in a game that God has and has never had any intention of playing. He has crowned and presented his king and he will reign. And his name is not Solomon. Solomon was just a placeholder until the real one came along. His name is Jesus. And how can I say it? Game over. Because Jesus the king sits not on David's throne, but is described here as a throne that is forever. Greater than David's throne, God's very throne. And that this king is not just God's king and son, but hear me, your son too. Bathsheba described as your son will sit on the throne. That's what David said. He didn't say my son. He said your son. Hear what the Bible's doing here. Bathsheba knew and missed all the drama of coming problems that if her son was God's choice to sit on God's throne, what? She would be okay, right? Do you know why Jesus was called the son of man? Because he was born to us and for us. So that like Bathsheba, if he is on the throne of God and is king, and he is our son like a hometown son sort of thing, then we and our issues and our concerns are always before him, and we are always important and matter to him. Mothers and single mothers out there, your son is on the throne. Fathers and sisters and brothers and community leaders and broken right now and angry and scared and uncertain, your son is on the throne. Humanity as a whole fallen and struck and hurt and harassed by sin in this world. Guess what? Your son is on the throne. I'm going to do my best not to make a political statement. This is a, not a political statement. There's something else going on here as I express this. Please. Keep your email to yourself. You can send it, just won't answer it, if it's about this. But for me, a black man, to have President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama in office, I look at that TV at my leader and I think, just because he's black, y'all, just because he's a man of color, our son is in the office. <laughs> That's my boy, right? Sorry if y'all can't understand, but it's like, that, that's my boy. That's my girl, right? Sometimes Michelle will come on TV and Kelly be like, that's my girl right there. Look at her. And I know what she's saying. She's not even saying, wow, that was such a great statement, or wow, that was such a political good thing, or wow, I agree with everything President Obama is doing, or wow, I'm, you know, just he, he's the new Messiah for us. No, I ain't saying none of that. I'm just looking at him, and I think, he might know me because he kind of looked like me in skin color. That's my boy. That's my girl, right? It's about time. Give me a chance, man. Come on. <laughs> Every time you use money for, for my Anglo brothers and sisters, you're like, that's my boy. $10, $25, right? I have confidence. And it lifts me that he identifies with me, and I can take some hope above a world. And it may not be, because, you know, I'm from Chicago, and I'm from that Harvard, Columbia crowd. I ain't into that. But I have confidence, and it lifts me nevertheless that he identifies with me, and I can have some hope above a world that might say, I don't matter, and no one or no one important or powerful enough knows me in my struggle to do anything about it, that guess what? That's my boy up there. Whether you're black, white, rich, or poor, male, or female. 
you can look to heaven. You can look at the throne of heaven. And as you look to Jesus as Lord and Savior and say, I matter because our son, my son is Lord, the son of man, and he reigns. And the one who reigns knows my grief. He knows my struggle. He identifies with my oppression. He grew up in my neighborhood. He knows what it's like to be a single mom or from a broken home or have a daddy that abandons him or a city that is afraid of or doesn't trust him or have a mama who, who, didn't get, who gave you up or liked her boyfriend more than she loved you. At the same time, he also knows what it is to be spoiled rich or isolated from the real world. He's been acquainted with our sins, right? He knows what it is to have sin from a protective and small-minded wealth and struggle of a middle-class family. The one who hears us and feels us and sees us and promises to lift his people who controls and has all power and administration in the universe is Jesus, our son. And our son, the son of man, is the son of God, God our king, Jesus Christ. But the final piece here, I want you to see. If you don't get this, none of the other stuff matters. Adonijah realizes he ain't the one. <laughs> Solomon has been put on the real throne for the real, for the real, the Bible says, that he runs to the altar, right? Adonijah runs at altar because he knows what he deserved to be cut down by Solomon for playing a game with Solomon's throne. The Bible says that Solomon didn't order Adonijah killed at the altar. Later, we see that grabbing on that altar, like some kind of religious myth, that if you grab it, you can't be killed, you know, cannot actually save you from the king's sword. Somebody tried that, didn't work, laid in the Bible. But Solomon gave Adonijah mercy. Look at this. The Bible tells us that Solomon came in on David's donkey or mule. Do you see the contrast? Adonijah came in on chariots and horses. Solomon came in like God's real king Jesus did when he went into Jerusalem to die on a mule declaring, I am your servant. Of, I'm a servant of God for you, for your soul, for your lives. I am not here for myself, but to serve and die for your good and your salvation and for your mercy. Like Adonijah, we've all tested God. Everybody in this room, everybody out there, We've all vied for God's throne, trying to run and escape our world on our own. We've all, regardless of who we are, have played a game of thrones with God. And we've lost. And when we feel guilty about it and realize we have been sinful in it, or realize that we have failed to be good, a good king of our own world, failing to fear, failing, falling to fear and violence and lying and prejudice and racism and classism and sexism and politicking and ignoring oppression, religion will not save you. What do I mean by religion? I'm going to stretch it out, trying to be a good person, getting all spiritual, or doing all the right social programs, or protesting, or speaking up, or flexing with tears and emotion. Those things in and of themselves will not save you or us or our communities. The grace of God from our reigning and ruling King Jesus alone will. See, like Adonijah, we should and could have been judged and condemned for playing around like a king or queen by the real King Jesus. But instead, he went and died on the altar. 
so that we can let go and be free. There's oppression and injustice in our situations, but it all begins with the oppression and injustice in our souls. Situations in our land and home are waiting for you and I to turn to them as freed by the grace of God. And for that freedom and healing, for you to go out there and for you to have justice for our souls and then our situations, Jesus, unlike Adonijah and you and me who know Christ, did not get mercy. But God struck him down on the altar of the cross. That's why you can let go and be freed. He became the sacrificial lamb for all you have done and all the injustice that have been done against you and me so that we can, like Adonijah, go home, come home, to return and turn to this world as, as people who know God's grace, God's mercy for our brokenness, for our oppression, and for our sin. God's people, especially members at Christ Central, don't go back home without his grace today. Religion will not save you. Stop holding on to it. Let go of your throne. Let go of your rage and anger and let Jesus take it. Don't go back home to your family, to your community, and to Charlotte without knowing the forgiveness of the king who reigns and rules and then died for you. I look at the TV. I hear people talking. People are so afraid of being guilty, of being wrong, of being condemned, of being overlooked. So they hold on to the throne. They hold on to the altar of religion and anger and bitterness to escape the pain. You can't let go until the appropriate sacrifice has been put there. You can let go of religion and all of that kind of stuff only if Christ dies for you. Remember that. It is the gospel that changes everything. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray and plead mercy for our city only knowing that Christ is going to take the penalty that we deserve. We can offer mercy to our city and justice to our city because you were done unjustly on the cross. You felt the justice of God. You felt the penalty of racism and oppression and sin. I pray for the people here in particular your people who are going to leave here and go out into the world. They're going to go home, Lord. I pray that they come home to you before they go home to the world. Out in their neighborhoods, communities, their jobs this week, to the TV, to the streets protesting possibly some of them. 
Let them know they're freed by the grace and mercy of God to trust you and to look at you on the throne and whatever they see and whatever they do. And Lord, I pray for those who don't know you today, who think religion will save them, who think the right plan and scheme and new nonprofit organization or a new plan for the city or a new police chief or a new mayor is actually going to change what's really causing the problem. Let them see. Let us see Jesus as the king, your king, to deal with it all. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name.